Welcome to Understanding VC. I am your host Rahul. Understanding VC is a show where I talk to VCs to learn how they work. Today my guest is Adrian Lee, co-founder and managing partner at AC Ventures. AC Ventures is an early stage Indonesia focused technology venture capital fund whose notable investments include Payfast, Coinworks, Julo, Carsum and M70. Previously, Adrian co-founded several ventures in China and Indonesia including Adapted, where as CEO and co-founder he raised two rounds of venture financing. and let the company to be the largest live one-on-one online english test preparation service in china he's also a sponsored endurance athlete and ranks in top 5 in his age group for ironman 70.3 distances ironman 70.3 distances or half ironman involves 1.9 kilometers of swimming 90 kilometers of biking and a half marathon insane let's talk to him hey adrian thanks so much for joining me today on my podcast Hi, great to see you, Rahul. So, could you share with me, like, where did you grow up, and uh, what were your interests growing up? Yeah, so I was born in England and actually moved to Hong Kong when I was seven, and promptly went to boarding school in the UK again when I was ten. So that actually, I think, helped shape a very cross-cultural upbringing for myself, which shaped my future and probably my affinity for living and working in many different places around the world. But I think it also contributed to my interest in tech in the early to mid '90s. I was an early adopter of a technology called MIRC, which is the most early, I think, communications messaging platform, as well as platforms like GeoCities and using web editors like Hotdog back in the day. And a lot of that was because I needed to stay in touch with my family, friends, and also my relatives. And so. you know back then i think being an early adopter of the internet really helped shape what i felt was cap- was possible through the internet i later i uh, studied economics at cambridge and you know actually spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out ways to use the internet to start companies not widely known i i did try and start a photo sharing website maybe okay. you could call that like a flickr okay. or instagram from you know two decades earlier or something but i also started an essay sharing site and that actually unfortunately landed me on the front of the college newspapers for trying to for potentially facilitating plagiarism at the university oh no. okay I-, i thought you would be appreciated but <laughs> <laughs> no i well the students i think certainly appreciated it maybe not so much the the teachers <laughs> Okay. Okay. So I read about your startup, one-to-one learning startup in China. Before that, uh, did you take up any job or? Yeah. So I started my career in finance. I worked at J.P. Morgan in the investment banking di- division, and was in their financial institutions group. So you know, from an early day, was deep and heavy in finance. It seemed like a natural choice after studying economics. But you know, again, interestingly, I. Uh, landed in that job out of uh, partly by accident. I had applied for and had uh, won a place in a entrepreneurship competition sponsored by J.P. Morgan. They had handed me some award money, but also an internship and a job offer came at the end of the internship. So I was that's where I headed off when I graduated. But I'd always had a long-standing passion and interest in tech and entrepreneurship. And so after a few years in banking I applied for business school and Stanford GSB was where I could finally make my pivot towards being an entrepreneur and pursue my passion in technology in particular building technology companies in emerging markets. Yeah. So at that point why specifically did you target China because you had close association or you had 
<laughs> actually, I, I actually I, I didn't. So I think you know, when I went back to think about when you think about and think about first why I applied to business school, you know, there are a couple of things, and in particular, Stanford asks you a couple of questions. Uh, one, what's most important to you, and why, and what do you want to do with your MBA? And even back then, I had a belief that we could really scale impact through technology, in particular, bring positive benefits to the broader population, to the people, and to the economy. And I wanted to be an investor in entrepreneurs to help them scale that impact, in particular in developing countries and emerging economies, because I felt that was where uh, we could have the greatest leverage in terms of using technology to bring that positive impact. So I've always been drawn to uh, developing markets. Now, initially, I thought that I'd go to China because I obviously have my ethnic roots in China, though I haven't really spent much time in China before. But my first company that I built was in education. And what we did was we used the internet as a platform to scale one-on-one English training to students worldwide. And clearly, the largest market in the world for that was China. And so it was important for my co-founder and I to, when we graduated, to be in that biggest market, build for the market. And so you know, we um, moved to China in 2006, and that's where we started that first company. Cool. So what were some of the challenges with that startup? So this one-to-one, is it really scalable? So these are like, so who are the teachers? Yeah, that's a great question. You see, so you know, we, we started with the problem, which in China, there um, back then at least, everyone, most students studied English and they studied for a long time. But the problem was many of them had no proficiency in spoken English. And you know that was because there just weren't simply enough native speakers of English to be able to provide the type of one-on-one interaction the students needed uh, to be able to improve, at least in China. And so the internet would be a platform that could provide that scalability because theoretically you could tap into any native speaker around the world. The question is how to do it. And what we came across was a company in Silicon Valley called LiveOps. And LiveOps was one of the already back then largest virtual call centers in the world. And they were able to use the internet as a technology to help uh, source, train, scale, and manage thousands of work-at-home people who could deliver contact center services via this platform. And we ended up meeting with the entrepreneur who built this company and told him about the problem we're trying to solve to help provide live one-on-one English teachers to or trainers to students in China. He said, you know, the platform that LiveOps has built would be the perfect model to be able to scale that. And so we learned a lot from him, Bill Tranchard, who's now a investor at First Round Capital. And we used that type of model to build the company that uh, we built called DJ English. Yeah. Nice. Suddenly, one of the challenges was when we launched in 2006, this is uh, China in 2006 had only, I think, just started 3G. They were probably mostly on edge. The iPhone had just come out. And so, you know, the product experience, unfortunately, was far from perfect. Normally, people had to connect on the virtual whiteboard using their PC. They needed to terminate the voice call to a, a landline or sometimes to a cell phone. So it's nothing like you know, cell phone, mobile phone technology as we see it today. And that, you know, it was challenging because probably our timing was a bit off. And you'll see that six years later, after we'd started our company, a company called VIP Kid was started, which essentially utilized many of the same thinking and the model and, you know, later became a multi-billion dollar business. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> too early, right? Yes. Too early. Yeah. 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 I, I always think about uh, Grab. You know, Grab wouldn't exist without Google Maps. Like, <laughs> how do you tell the drivers, like, where to go efficiently? Right. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned as an entrepreneur, like building that business and the ones further? Well, I think, you know, first of all, we just mentioned one, which is timing. You know, I think we sometimes underappreciate the importance of timing, but you know, certainly after, you know, fortunately, we were able to sell that business to a U.S. education company. But, you know, had we started six years later, we would have been at a time where, you know, the market would have been ripe for providing scalable one-on-one English trading. And you know, perhaps even VIP Kid, we could have been peers uh, to them uh, having you know, had that experience. Timing also can work the reverse way. I think you know, you've also seen Edutech in China has come under a lot of regulatory pressure. And so maybe that business model will no longer work, at least in China. Uh, but you know, so certainly I think timing is one of the things you always have to bear in mind as a founder of a business, fast-growing business. I think in terms of company building, you, you can't underestimate the, the value of, of talent. Talent is absolutely key. Working with the right people. You know, I think I was very fortunate to have my co-founder who was able to not only be a fantastic engineer and product visionary, uh, but also very strong in operations. And uh, combining the right complementary experience and capabilities from a founding set, I think is one of the most important things an entrepreneur can do in founding a company, finding the right partners to be able to build the business in the first place. I think you know, as you extend that, it's obviously bringing on board the best talent you can. And what you'll quickly find is that hiring tens, hiring the best people that you can, is going to deliver exponentially more value than you know, people who are just okay onto your company. And when you're a small company, it's so critical to place enormous focus on the quality of talent that you're bringing on board. Okay. So uh, you guys had moved to China, right? So how difficult was like hiring because you're in a foreign country, a different work culture? So fortunately, I'd spent some time studying Chinese when I was a student. And so you know, I uh, quickly brought to bear as much Mandarin as I, as I could remember. But you know, being immersed in the market, uh, it, was, it was almost by force of the environment that I picked up Mandarin you know, much more fluently in a short space of time. You're right, it's difficult to hire in a uh, market where you know, you're not fluent or native to the language. But we you know, spent a lot of time thinking about the science of, of hiring and understanding clearly you know, what, are we, what are you searching for, what are you looking for in potential candidates uh, to join a company. Uh, I think you know, several books that we read, some ideas that really stuck. Um, you know, there's a book, I forget the name of the book now, but you know, basically... Top grading. So there's a book called Top Grading, which I think is fantastic. It's almost a tome on on hiring. And the important thing is is to understand for the role you're trying to hire for. Uh, when you interview someone, you're essentially looking for data points. You're looking for data points which are going to provide evidence that uh, the person that you're interviewing and the candidate has the right experience, the right capabilities, uh, the right potential to really succeed in the role that you're trying to bring them in for. And so uh, I find oftentimes you know, interviews are too superficial. People are looking for fit and just perhaps culture or people that they have good chemistry with. Of course, it's all of that, but more because you're hiring a candidate for a job. And there are interesting parallels when you take that, even as a VC, because as you meet with a founder, especially in 
you know, in, in, in uh, emerging markets like Indonesia, where, you know, to a large extent as a VC, you're able to do a lot of backup research on the market thesis on areas that you feel have strong potential for technology disruption. You have the benefit of being able to look at business models from other developing markets around the world or developed markets around the world and see which models really work. Then you have to really focus in on, is this the right entrepreneur? Is this the entrepreneur with the right, what we call founder market fit? And that parallel comes across because in many ways, when you're meeting with the founders, you're trying to ascertain, is this the right entrepreneur? Is this the right person who can fit the job of an entrepreneur as a CEO to build a company? And so your podcast is sometimes, you, you, you said, you know, those questions that, we, you know, that uh, founders are sometimes afraid to ask. What are we trying to understand here? What, are we trying, what data points are we trying to distill? Of course, we, you know, it's table stakes that the founder should know his market. They should know their business model, at least you know, provide thinking about how they will go after the business model. But we're also trying to find evidence and data on the key attributes that we, so far based off the 100 plus investments that we have done in the past 10 years, correlations to the strongest attributes that we know great founders, great entrepreneurs have. And so you know, founders shouldn't be surprised and we're asking about their track record, their history, about their prior jobs, about their prior companies, uh, not just what they're doing today with their present business. It's sometimes almost less about just the business, but more about the team and the founders who we're trying to back. Nice. So your time as a VC and as an entrepreneur, uh, what do you think is more fulfilling personally for you? Well, I love the fact that I have this wonderful opportunity to be a venturepreneur. And what I mean by a venturepreneur is that you know, I'm a founder and uh, you know, I'm managing partner of the venture firm that I started. And so first of all, from a venture standpoint, you know, I am not just thinking of ourselves as investors, but also in thinking as a venturepreneur and entrepreneur building uh, AC Ventures as a platform. You know, our goal in the long term is to be a generational partner to founders building the most disruptive companies in Southeast Asia. And that means thinking about our firm as well thinking about ourselves, AC Ventures, also as a firm. So strategically, how do we build our services to support entrepreneurs? How do we groom talent within our own firm so that we can scale our, our investments and also our support of entrepreneurs? How do we differentiate ourselves? How do we always stay you know, ahead of the game in order to uh, provide unique value propositions to our founders and to our LPs? So suddenly I get a lot of the kind of entrepreneurial build side in the role of leading AC Ventures. But at the same time, you know, almost the most fulfilling part is being able to partner with some of the best entrepreneurs in our region and work with them to solve uh, the problems that they are addressing. And I think that fulfillment comes from the ability to distill you know, everything that we've seen, the decades of experience that we've built, our collective uh, not just my own, but my teams, including my partners, uh, Michael and Pandu, our collective experience, network and resources and bring those to bear to really help support our founders to build their businesses, create value and generate huge impact. So in all your time as a VC, what is like the best pitch that you've heard? The best pitch? Yeah, so you're kind of echoing back to what I was mentioning earlier. When, I, when we think of pitches, I don't really think of the best pitches being like what you might see on Shark Tank or on, on Demo Day, right? Those are, to many extent, a great 
sales pitch, right? And certainly the best pitches are great sales pitches. But for the purposes of how we're trying to evaluate our entrepreneurs, we're really trying to understand the founders, right? Their, again, their experience, their drive to build this business. So the best pitches for us help connect to the very personal stories of founders, whether it's through their personal life or even their, and their work life, to the opportunity and why they are prepared to put aside all of the other opportunities that they could be going after, embark on what is probably the most difficult journey that they can do to go build a startup. And those pitches which can provide that type of data uh, for us to help underwrite for the right entrepreneur for this particular business opportunity, I find are the best are the best pitches. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's say a startup approach you with for an investment. Could you walk me through the, your process, like the time from first meeting to maybe wiring the money to the bank account of the startup? Uh, so what is the process like, and how long does it take? Narahu, it really depends on the stage of the company, how familiar we are with the entrepreneur. We've been in market for some time, so we've had the opportunity to meet a lot of potential entrepreneurs and also entrepreneurs uh, who are perhaps coming the second time around to build a business as well. So you know, a lot of it depends on that. But you know, after the first meeting, if it's a company that we like, we would proceed to write what we call a potential summary, which is essentially a one-pager describing the opportunity. And that is presented to the partners and the team you know, every week. And if we, you know, if it's something that we see a lot of potential in, we'll then proceed immediately to due diligence on the business and prepare our memo for bringing it up to an investment committee decision. Now, this, you know, if for a seed company with a founder that we're familiar with, could happen as quickly as a few days, you know, say a week. But you know, if it's a company which has a lot more traction, a lot more detail, a lot more we can get into and to understand and underwrite it, then it may take a fair bit longer. So it may take a couple of weeks, a few more weeks. It also really does depend on the the market at the time and you know how you know, let's say how hot the deal is. Now that doesn't necessarily change. That doesn't change the outcome of a, a decision on a deal. Uh, but what it does, what it can change, is the prioritization. You know, as uh, VCs, we're constantly multitasking. So we're evaluating new deals. We're working with existing deals. We're helping with you know, fundraising on existing deals, as well as a myriad of other things. And so trying to prioritize all of that can also sometimes get driven by the market dynamics uh, for any particular deal. So it may sometimes take longer. It may sometimes happen faster as well. So do you delay your decision making just to see some VCs do this, right? They want startups to show progress on a month on month and they don't want to say no. So they just leave you hanging. Do you do that? I wouldn't say that it's a, that there's a necessarily a deliberate strategy of leaving founders hanging. I think there are often times where having, especially for, for, for a company which uh, is fast growing and there are a number of hypotheses which could be proven out with some additional data over uh, the over the uh, series of days or even or, or weeks and so at times when there isn't enough data to or conviction to underwrite a deal immediately then you may a VC may ask to continue to keep in touch and hear updates on on the company you know I think that founders you know, should ask for feedback ask what, what is the additional data that a VC is looking for and really try and divine whether this is a uh, a no but let's keep in touch uh, or is it a yes but we're looking for X y and Z 
So uh, do you inform all the startups that uh, approach you for investment of your decision? Like uh, whether yes, no, no, what, no matter what? Yes. In general, it's, uh, you know, our, our, our philosophy that, you know, when we have the opportunity to spend some time with entrepreneur and look into a company in more detail, uh, we will inform them as soon as we can on a decision. And, you know, that decision could be yes to invest, you know, pending terms. Uh, it could be a no. It could be, you know, we'd like to keep in touch and see how your business grows. I think in each time and every interaction that we have with founders, uh, it is also important to share your know, feedback regardless of that outcome. You know, what was it that we found difficult to understand about the company? We sometimes even make introductions, helpful introductions to network or resources or even other investors who might have a stronger interest in the particular sector that a founder might have. So I, I was reading about how you support your portfolio companies and I read about like you have specific team to help with hiring, business development, etc. And I also read about AC Academy. So I'm curious to know what, what is AC Academy? So AC Academy is still work in progress, but what we found is that, you know, as entrepreneurs and founders ourselves, and having seen a huge number of founders uh, that we've backed and the process by which they have done you know, cr critical company building functions, such as fundraising, hiring, designing OKRs and building culture, we've identified a number of key topics that we feel that we can bring together the collective knowledge and experience that we have gained you know, as investors, but also with the help of some of our top performing founders to create a supportive curriculum that can be scaled across all of our portfolio. So you know, this is a, a set of workshops and content that we're in the process of building. We expect to be able to launch a full suite of this towards the end of this year or early next year. And we feel that it's something that can really help the founders navigate these critical issues in a informative way and practical way. Nice, nice. So I've heard you compare uh, Indonesia and China all the time. So a uh, first question regarding China. So uh, China has this 996 work culture, right? Do you believe in that culture? I'm a believer in results and learning and not time spent. So I don't think of a work culture by your 996, you know, in terms of nine to nine and six days a week, you know, certainly you might end up working like that, but I'd rather define a work culture in a way that is defined on the results of what you do and uh, the impact of that work. I also deeply believe that work has to be sustainable for anything great to come of it. You know, it takes a long time to achieve greatness. And if you don't last the distance, there's this huge risk that you just don't get there in the end. And you know, a lot of that work could be sacrificed or be at risk. You know, that, that comes back to you know, my uh, interest as an endurance athlete. And I think a lot about how do you last the distance? How do you keep going? And you think about the founding companies in a similar fashion. Nothing gets done through just a shortcut or a short sprint. And great companies that can't last the distance uh, won't end up as great companies. So I think it's important that you love what you do. And I think when your passion meets both purpose and the right people, the intersection of those things makes work not feel like work. And so you may end up working a lot of the time, but it has to be, you know, again, focused on the results and not just time spent, but also in the right, uh, in the right way, in a sustainable way. Yeah. 
so i mean increasingly i've been thinking like the the family element is also very important right i mean people talk about work and it's it's i feel that it's like a little bit overrated because then you you are like giving up on like uh, spending time with your kids or if you have kids and also your me time but yeah you have like a very balanced thing going on with uh, all your endurance activities you know i think it sometimes balance might feel like a barbell strategy where you have heavy weights on either end and you're achieving balance I think you know people achieve balance and sustainability in different ways and I'm very fortunate to have a life partner who is also an entrepreneur and understands what it takes as an entrepreneur and founder of a business and you know at times you know what we might call sacrifice in order to 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 build something great. We have uh, two young kids who you know we've had remarkable you know fortune to be able to spend great deal of time uh, together with and even more so during the pandemic with working from home and also home based learning at times as well but i think the you know the most important uh, thing about this is that you are very aligned however you approach it right you are able to do it for the long run right you have to uh, i think in triathlon terms it's going long and uh, if you can go long with your strategy be it one that you call balanced or one that you call extreme then you find the strategy that works for you and you keep with it yeah so uh, what are some other parallels between like triathlon and uh, maybe startups in general so you know i've spent some time actually you know thinking about you know how triathlon may have interesting analogies to startup you know triathlon you know for those who are not familiar is a three discipline race which starts with swimming and then moves on to cycling and finishes with a run. The Ironman distance triathlon is the longest of the distance of this race in fact it's I think it's the longest single day endurance sport and involves a 4 km swim, a 180 km bike uh, followed by a 42 km full marathon uh, run at the end. And how you know I think in the big picture how that compares to startup is a you clearly you have to go long right? you have to be able endurance. to last the distance it's an endurance sport and i definitely see doing a startup being an endurance endeavor you have to kind of go the distance all the greatest companies of the world have you know taken decades uh, to be able to reach you know that that sort of scale but also when i think about the different stages of a triathlon you have some parallels to how a startup works you know at the early stage of a triathlon it's generally a mass start everyone's jumping into the water and you know their elbows and their feet kicking it's easy to get knocked out and at the early stages of a startup with lots of competition everyone going after competing opportunities it's the same thing you could get knocked out too early so you have to be tactical you have to think about strategically how you differentiating how you stay lean how you uh, be able to survive that initial sprint then as you move on to the cycle i think you know in in triathlon that's the opportunity where you know athletes can pull ahead it's the longest part of the race it you know given you're on a bike if you're strong on the bike you can really pull ahead of a lot of the competitors and i think of this sometimes as startups which then start raising capital and you can raise immense raise immense amounts of capital and really pull ahead of the competition start investing into your systems your people products and so on your technology and you can gain some really good you know strong advantages during that section um of that uh of the startup or that section of the race but in the end you still have to finish right and with uh, ironman triathlon that all comes down to the run if you spe- if you went too fast or you spent too much in that cycle portion 
and you have nothing left in the tank and you're not going to finish the run or you can't run strong, then you, know, you, you may not finish and you may not suddenly get the position that you were hoping to get. And again, I draw that parallel back to, uh, to startups because you know, it's not just you raise a lot of capital and you start investing yourself and you pull ahead, you know, whether it's by gaining market share and so on, but you still have to finish strong in that kind of last leg of the race. And for a startup, that may mean eventually turning that market scale that you have into a profitable company. It may mean taking the company to an IPO. It may mean maturing your product lines and at some point trying to expand into a different product lines. Uh, but again, it's that concept of having to stay. So you know, it's really important even with startups to be able to last the game and in order to complete you know, the final innings. I suppose you know, with startup, they may not necessarily, with companies may not necessarily be a a finish line, an end goal. You're constantly trying to build the business. You're trying to build a business that can endure. So maybe the analogy does end there. But the concept of being able to go long, uh, not it's not just about raising the capital and pulling ahead, getting the market share. Ultimately, you do have to build a profitable business uh, at scale. Yeah, this is a really great analogy, I feel, because both are like really daunting things <laughs> to do. Certainly. Yeah, so going back to that comparison between China and Indonesia, so people, a lot of people say there are like similarities, but like, how do you think Indonesia is different to China in terms of an so, emerging market? So in terms of, you know, clearly there's some clear differences from size. It's a smaller market. You know, there's less competition, less capital. It's slow in terms of the infrastructure built out, build out that you've seen compared to China and of, of late less regulatory encumbrance for for companies. So, you know, those are some of the, I think, obvious differences between Indonesia and, and China. But at the same time, you know, Indonesia is the largest market in Southeast Asia. It represents the biggest opportunity, both in terms of existing demographics, but also for future potential. And so you've seen that there are very few unicorns, billion dollar businesses in Southeast Asia, uh, which aren't category leaders, winners in their respective markets in Indonesia. And so I think it has a lot going for it. Indonesia is a quite open market when it comes to talent. So while there is less talent in Indonesia compared to somewhere like China, Indonesia has done a great job of attracting, I believe, talent uh, because of its market opportunity. And you know, there have been entrepreneurs who've come to Indonesia and built some really fantastic companies together with uh, local co-founders. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges that the startup ecosystem is facing right now in Indonesia? I think that you know, Indonesia, despite the latest increase and in, of attention by global investors, still suffers from a talent shortage compared to markets like China and India, which from, I think, their very early stages had well-known Silicon Valley capital uh, establish itself there. Uh, Indonesia didn't have the same. In fact, most of Southeast Asia venture was kicked off by venturepreneurs, entrepreneurs, investors, business operators who started the most of the venture firms out here. And it wasn't until much more recently that the global names have come. Of course, Sequoia has been an active investor from earlier on through their India fund, but you know, many of the other global names did not come until uh, more recently. Uh, it's far less, you know, if you compare uh, what India and China had to what uh, Indonesia has today. And so I think that you know, with more capital coming to this market, we're going to be able to back the companies with the additional financing they need to really realize the potential that they have. 
So uh, w- what about any regulatory issues or lack of infrastructure? The great thing about, you know, when we started investing in the Indonesian market, you know, seven plus years ago, you know, there was, you know, there was some really important infrastructure deficits, which prevented massive scale, right? There was penetration. There wasn't a good 3G or 4G connection across the country. There were also hardware issues. A lot of people could not afford mobile phones that could realize the potential of the digital products that we see today. So, you know, and beyond that, you also had payment issues, you had logistics issues, and many more. You know, compare that to now, that is day and night, right? That uh, it's, it's so cost-effective to be able to get a mobile phone from which you can conduct any sort of e-commerce or even financial fintech products these days. Connectivity is pretty widespread. There's been masses of development and progress for fintech in particular, be it payments, access to credit, and so on. And certainly logistics has really boomed, in the, especially in the last 18 months, as COVID has uh, given a massive boost to e-commerce. So a lot of those infrastructural encumbrances have actually been reduced. And I think it's a really great time to be building uh, tech businesses in Indonesia. From a regulatory perspective, I think for a long time, Jokowi has seen technology as a pillar and cornerstone of his broader administration's uh, mandate. And the government has been quite proactive and supportive of the technology ecosystem. You know, that includes being proactive in seeking ways to regulate important sectors like fintech, creating sandboxes to uh, allow fintech companies to innovate, but also maintain a dialogue so as to craft the right type of regulatory measures that can encourage innovation, uh, not stifle it, and help get safe products to the market. So I think the government has done a great job of doing that. So in terms of like, if you were to describe like an average entrepreneur right now in Indonesia, what would he be like in terms of his education background and also his work experience? So I think historically we saw some of the entrepreneurs as returnees. So Indonesians who had studied abroad or sometimes worked at US technology businesses coming back to Indonesia to start businesses. And this was a profile that we saw a lot of. I think these days, given that the tech ecosystems of the go-tos, the travel locus, the shoppies, and so on have become so big, they've done a phenomenal job of attracting tremendous talent uh, from Indonesia, from around the region and other places around the world as well, and train them with the rigors of what it takes to build a fast-growing startup. And many of these uh, individuals have also uh, found peers in these groups for people to be co-founders with. And some have found themselves called to you know, being an entrepreneur. So I think there's a lot more talent than what we had before. And there are a lot more opportunities for founders to find the perfect product that they want to build for the Indonesian market. Nice, nice. So what keeps you going? What are you excited about when you think about the future? So I think that especially in markets like Indonesia, with what has happened with COVID, you know, internet technology still has such an incredible potential to enrich the lives of many. And the digitization of everything in the economy uh, still has a long, long way to go uh, in a country like Indonesia. So I'm really excited about you know, the companies to come, the impact that they will have to 
you know, all the people of Indonesia and to Southeast Asia, the impact it will have to the economy. And really excited to you know, meet the entrepreneurs who are going to be creating this better tomorrow for everyone. Nice. That's a nice note to end this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Rahul. It was a pleasure to be on the show. And thanks for doing the good work of spreading the news of what's happening in Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Thank you. If you like this episode, please share it with folks who might be interested. And also subscribe at understandingvc.com and leave us a review. Thank you.